Let's pray. God, we just uh, thank you that we can gather and worship this morning. Lord, we want to lift up Judy to you. I thank you, Lord, for that lady and for her heart for you and for her church and for her husband and for her family. And uh, God, I just ask for your grace upon her life today, Lord, that you would heal her, that um, you would fill her with your strength, Lord, and that she would sense, God, just... um, with a real peace in her heart that you have your hand upon her life, Lord, that you're in control and that she need not fear. And so, Lord, we just pray for your comfort in her, Lord. We pray for your healing in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I thank you that um, the word of God tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. And Lord, I thank you that we could just uh, start this series in the book of Esther this morning. And God, as we do, I pray that we would uh, see the hand of your providence, that we would see how you work throughout history and in our lives. And God, we just ask your blessing upon the teaching of the word of God this morning, that it would pierce our hearts, Lord, that it would touch our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would anoint it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. Are you there, Esther, book of Esther? I love coming to new books and new studies when we're doing that. And one of the things I love about it is just getting to dig into the background and some of the things that are happening behind the scenes that we might not necessarily read about in the pages of our Bible. And so let me give you a little bit of a background, a a recap to uh, some history that's happening and what the context is surrounding the story of Esther. After 490 years, you know, we've just come out of Exodus, and imagine the children of Israel going to the land of Israel, they conquer it, they conquer the land of Canaan, Uh, they live there for 490 years, they really go through their glory days through the leadership of David and Solomon, and after these 490 years, and the nation really turning in its heart and rebelling against God, um, by the hand of God, uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged the city of Jerusalem and he took the children of Israel uh, captive as his captives from uh, the promised land to Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet uh, prophesied that this time of captivity for the children of Israel would last for 70 years. It was Daniel, we know about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who were taken to be young men at that time where the the captivity was happening and to be trained in the land of Babylon that Daniel had a vision from the Lord that revealed to him some of the successive kingdoms that would happen, that would conquer the world and that the Babylonian empire would eventually be conquered by the Medo-Persian empire and that happened during the lifetime of Daniel. And so as we come to the book of Esther, we're, we're going to see that this is the rule of the Medo-Persians. In, time, in terms of the chronology and where this, um, this book of Esther fits in your Bible, it actually fits between Ezra and Nehemiah. You recall that it was Ezra who was commissioned to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple after the 70 years. And along with him, uh, about 60,000 Jews returned to their homeland. 
uh, to help build, rebuild the temple. Many others did not return. Maybe it was, you know, because they had planted fields and built homes and raised their, their families in ex- exile and they had made a, a, a life away from Israel. Many others, I would say, is just simply an issue of, of timing or God's leading, but they yet to return. And so there was many uh, hundreds of thousands of Israelites still living amongst the kingdom. So Ezra goes and he rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah is commissioned and he'll eventually go back to Jerusalem and he'll rebuild the walls of the city that sur- surround that ancient city. And the book of Esther is sandwiched between those two stories, Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's not placed there in our Bibles. If you were to turn to the front of your Bible and your table of contents and to look at the order of the Old Testament books, here's what you would see. Because uh, they're actually in different groupings and it's a, it's a Jewish thing. Our, our Bible is, div- the Old Testament is really divided into four parts. You have firstly the first five books of Moses. We call them the Pentateuch. Then next come the historical books. So the historical books are from Joshua to Esther, where we're going to be this morning. They recount the history of the nation of Israel. And then next comes what is called the wisdom literature. It's things like um, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Job, uh, the Song of Solomon. And then the last section of the Old Testament we call the, any guesses? The prophets. Starts with, starts with Isaiah. Esther falls into the category of historical literature and it's, it's placed as the last of the historical books in the Old Testament, but not chronologically. Remember, if we put it in chronological order, it goes in a different spot. I would say, you know, Esther is placed last in terms of priority because of its theme, because of the message that we're going to hear over the next little while while we work through this book, over the next five weeks. Um, And the primary lesson or the theme of the book of Esther is the providence of God. Providence speaks of God's sovereign protective care over the world and over his people. Providence means, it's been said this, that it's, it's like um, the hand of God in the glove of human events. That God works in all things for the good of his people. Providence actually means to provide. That God is Jehovah Jireh, God my provider. You remember when Abraham was on Mount Moriah, he'd taken Isaac there at the command of God. He had bound Isaac. He'd placed him on the altar and he was going to sacrifice his son. And he raised his hand with that instrument and about to take Isaac's life and God stayed his hand. And, and God said, don't sacrifice your son. I will provide myself a ram. And as Abraham looked, he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns and he took that animal and he sacrificed it in place of his son. But ultimately, God was speaking. We know of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, God's providence. Providence is the means by which God directs all things. Animate things, inanimate things, seen things, unseen things. The means by which he directs good and the means by which he redeems things that are evil. So that his purposes and his plans 
will prevail and be accomplished. So Esther is the last of the historical books. It takes its name, Esther, from the main character of the story, the heroine, Esther. Uh, That name, Esther, was a Persian name, and it means star. In fact, uh, that is Venus, the morning star. You know, if you rise early in the morning, the morning star is the star that continues to uh, shed its light after all other stars have ceased to shine. It shines while the sky waits for the sun to rise in the east. And we're going to see as we go through this story that Esther was a bright light. Uh, She shone during a dark time in Israel's history. I would say a morning star that reminded them that though it would be dark, the providence of God would ensure the sun's coming, the sun's rising, uh, the coming of Jesus. And so let's turn there. Uh, Esther chapter 1 in your Bibles. It says this. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. Ahasuerus is... The Hebrew version of a Persian name, we know Ahasuerus a little bit better throughout our understanding of history as Xerxes. This is King Xerxes. His father was Darius. We read about him in in the book of Daniel. Uh, this, This king Ahasuerus was from an illustrious royal family. Um, Xerxes or as we're going to refer to him here in, in, in Esther, Ahasuerus, ruled over the Medo-Persian Empire from 486 to 465 BC. And this little book is going to give us uh, basically about a 12-year look at his reign and what was happening in Susa at that time. Now, it's hard to comprehend this kingdom, if you think about it, from India to Ethiopia, to the East India, to the West, stretching as far as Ethiopia. His empire would have covered what today we would recognize as Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Israel, Sudan, Libya, Arabia. Like, I mean, think about the extent of this king's rule. 127 provinces. You think about our handful of provinces that we have in Canada. He had 127 provinces. His father, uh, Darius, had mounted a couple of campaigns in an effort to expand their empire. He desired to take uh, the Greeks as well. And in fact, Darius had uh, failed in two campaigns against the Greeks. And he was actually killed in the second campaign. And it was at that time that Ahasuerus took control of his father's throne. And so, you know, it's hard to imagine such a massive government, but he ruled 127 provinces. And history records that it was his desire to have revenge and avenge and follow through with his father's failed attempts to conquer Greece. In fact, he had a vision that was bigger than that. He said, I'm going to go through Greece and then I'm going to take all of Europe. And... So we read here that in the third year of his reign, well, reading between the lines, 
he is actually beginning to plan, to take the steps to plan his attack. And it began with a plan to get all of the officials on his side of this reign of this young king. And so in the third year of his reign, from the royal throne in Susa, he gave a feast for all of the officials of all of the provinces and his servants. And actually here we're going to read about three feasts in, in Esther chapter 1 here. Let's, let's keep reading in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. Also couches of gold and, and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drink was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given order, orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And so in those verses we see two feasts that the king holds. The first lasted for 180 days. It was for all the government officials. And I just think with 127 provinces, I don't imagine that he had everyone come at once. They were probably, you know, you don't want the kingdom to fall apart while you're having a party. And so I imagine that the different leaders and officials were cycling through and coming in different rounds as uh, King Ahasuerus began to get them behind him for the military campaign. He showed off his riches and his wealth and he brought in his armies and he showed them his glory and he sought to impress them with his power and his wealth and I would call him a proud man, wouldn't you, as you read that? And as a proud man, he began to try and appeal to the pride in others and there's a sense that I would say this great king did not understand that his authority came from God. That all authority comes from God. I mean, if we go back to our series in Exodus, Pharaoh learned that all authority comes from God. You go to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and though he be the greatest of kings and have the greatest of empire, uh, you know, in Daniel's vision, seen by the head of gold, that even the animals of the forest obeyed him, the word of God says. Nebuchadnezzar came to the place that he understood that his authority came from God Almighty. Ahasuerus did not yet understand that, that the Lord is Lord of all. And when this first feast concluded after 180 days, he began a feast for, for seven days. This time it was for, for people great and small who lived in his city, the citadel of Susa. And the king showed them the treasures of his kingdom. And the decorations were grand and the wine flowed and every man did as he desired. You need to see that as we read that. And as is the case, I would say when the wine flows and the inhibitions of man are not suppressed by sobriety, every man did as he pleased. 
Now verse 9 says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So here's the third feast. It's for the women hosted by the king's wife, Queen Vashti. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Ritztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abath, I don't know, Sether and Carcass, and the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Uh, the heart of the king was merry, it says, uh, with wine, and you get the idea. He's drunk. After many days of partying in the palace, the king is drunk, and what motivated, we're not told here. I can only imagine that it was his pride. Uh, his pride not even in just his riches, but his pride in the beauty of his wife. And he'd showed off all his other treasures, his gold, his wealth, his pomp, his glory. And I wonder, you know, maybe the men were even goading him. You know, king, you showed us all your treasures, but there's one you're keeping to yourself. You haven't showed us that one. Your wife. And though it's not specifically said, uh, the implication is, is that as, as the king called his wife into the presence of these drunken men, this drunken party, the implication was that Vashti was going to have to show herself in some sort of immodest way. Maybe in the Persian culture, maybe it was simply removing the, her headdress, uh, her head covering. Maybe it was more. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So Vashti refuses to come. And what we got to remember here as we read this story is that in those days, a woman did not say no to her husband, especially to the king. Uh, and, you know, we hope that Vashti was simply being modest, uh, refusing to be paraded around in front of a bunch of drunken men. That's not a, a safe thing for a woman. But Jewish tradition actually says this, that her refusal had nothing to do with her modesty. That the stories of Jewish tradition say that she was ready to appear before the dinner guests completely unclothed. Except that God smote her with leprosy just as she received the request. So, you know, it's tradition. It's probably pretty unlikely but it adds some good drama to the retelling of the story. <laughs> you know, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 says this, wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And there is a special responsibility that a wife has to submit to their husband, to give respect to their husband. But that does not mean that a wife needs to obey her husband if the command is for her to do something sinful. Every command to submit on a human level is conditioned by the commands to submit to a higher obligation, and that is to God. Uh, before a husband. And husbands, we know from Ephesians, are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. To lay down their lives like Jesus laid down his life for his bride. So in the same way, husbands are called to lay down their lives. A husband and wife, uh, 
you know, in a marriage situation, doing as the scripture commands makes for a beautiful marriage. There's no fear in submission when it comes uh, towards one who is laying down his life for you. But Ahasuerus was not laying down his wife, uh, his life for his wife. He wasn't looking out or being loving of Queen Vashti. He was just motivated by his pride and he was drunk. And at her refusal, he got angry. Now, this is a dangerous combination. Pride, alcohol, anger. Bad scene. We know that. It's a deadly combo, and it's going to lead this man to do something very stupid. Some things he's going to later regret. Verse 13. And the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure. All who were versed in the law, toward all who were versed in the law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Verse 16. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against King Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women. This is dangerous. Will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard, the queen's heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all of the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Oh no! It's a national crisis. Do you see this happening? It's terrible. All of the wives in the kingdom are going to quit obeying their husbands is the threat here. I hope you can see the humor as you read this. And you know... For men, if you're too thick to understand what's going on here, you know, just go home and lay on the couch this afternoon and snap your fingers and ask your wife to, and she'll just give you a sermon lesson this afternoon. Okay? No, it's Super Bowl Sunday. You know, we should get to lay on the couch and watch the football game today. Uh, but try it. Try snapping your fingers. <laughs> But we see here the joke, right? I mean, these guys take this thing and they say, oh, this is a national crisis. All women will begin to not obey their husband. Verse 19. So Memucan continues. If you please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and, king Memu and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be the master of his household and speak according to the language of his people. I don't know. What do you say? What a foolish king, right? And he heeded 
uh, foolish counsel. He showed himself to be unreasonable. For her active insubordination, Vashti would no longer be queen. He would divorce her. And then every woman in the empire would know they should obey their husbands. How stupid, right? It's humorous though. And the letters we read, they went out to all the provinces. And as was the culture and the legal system uh, amongst the Medo-Persians, once the king gave a legal decree, it could not be repealed. It could not be reversed, not even by him. And so Vashti was put away. So we come to the end of chapter one. Now between chapter one and chapter two, three years pass. In which Ahasuerus gets his armies all together. They go off to fight the Greeks and in humiliation, he is defeated and he comes back to Susa, failed in his campaign. The Greeks are rising in power. We come to chapter two. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought, be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. Under the custody of Hege, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given to them and let young women who and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. And he did so. So, you know, eventually after being off, at, he puts his wife away. He goes off to war. He comes home and comes to his senses. Uh, he remembers his wife. And we're going to see something about Ahasuerus. By no means was this a monogamous man. Uh, don't have that picture in your mind whatsoever. But the reality is, is this. You can, you can have all the sex in the world, but that doesn't replace having a wife. And it doesn't replace the safety and the security and the bond that happens between a man and a woman within marriage, within the context of the marriage relationship. You know, marriage is awesome where there's friendship and there's companionship and there's love and there's commitment and there's history with one another and there's hope and future and there's children and the potential of grandchildren and all those things. Marriage is a beautiful thing. And when Ahasuerus remembered his wife, it, it, it sucked. He came to his senses after he'd blown the whole thing up, but it was too late. You know, God gave Adam a gift in Eve. Proverbs says this, that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. Marriage is awesome. And when Ahasuerus got over his anger, he realized he had done a stupid thing and he missed his wife and he missed the relationship that he had with her. So the young man seeing him grieve, they come up with a plan. Some suggest that this was a beauty competition. I don't think it was it was not a beauty competition. Beautiful young virgins would be sought throughout the kingdom and they would be brought into the king's harem. And 
you know, I guess maybe that seems like kind of a good thing. It's, it's life in the capital city. It's living in Susa. It's living in the palace. But the reality is, is only one would be selected to be the king's wife. And the rest of them would just remain in his harem. Maybe become a concubine or stay there serving one of his concubines or eventually his wife. And, you know, of course, Ahasuerus being a man thought this was a great idea. <laughs> uh, the Jewish historian Josephus says that Ahasuerus had a total of 400 women brought into the harem, the harem, the harem, brought into the harem and, and selected to potentially be uh, the queen. And this is where we're introduced to our young heroine. Verse 5. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So here's Mordecai and Esther. They're going to become major players, obviously, in this story. They were cousins. Mordecai was raising his cousin as his own daughter. Um, we read there about Mordecai that he came to Persia as one of the Jews who was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And so he spent his life there. He's, a, he's an old man at this point in time. And had been relocated from Jerusalem or from Israel by the Babylonians into Persia. His family line is very interesting. You might recognize it from different places that you read in the scripture. He was a Benjamite, a son of Kish. Does that remind you of anyone in the scriptures? Anybody? The first king of Israel. He was of the line of Saul, who was also a Benjamite and the son of Kish. You recall when you think about the story of Saul that Saul's kingship and his rule ended in tragedy, in failure, ultimately uh, in his death. Uh, and because of his failure, because of his disobedience, his sons did not inherit the throne. His royal line did not continue. The throne was handed over to David and it continued through the line of David. The real downward spiral in the life of Saul started when he failed to obey the word of the Lord to destroy a group of people called the Amalekites. Their king's name was Agag. The story of the Amalekites actually begins in Exodus where we had our last series. You remember this, that the Amalekites came and they attacked the Israelites. They had come out, crossed the Red Sea. They were there in the desert going towards Mount Sinai, and out of nowhere, unprovoked, the Amalekites attacked them. And that's the battle in which Moses held the staff of God in his arms, and as he held it up, Joshua and the army was defeating the Amalekites. And as his arms got tired and came down, they would begin to lose the battle. And so Joshua and Hur came beside him, and they held up his arms, and they sat him down on a, on a rock, and the Israelites defeated the Amalekites. King Saul was given the mission from God once he was made king of the people of Israel a few hundred years later to give the final last blow to the old foe, the Amalekites. 
and he was to wipe them off the face of the earth. And in his disobedience, he failed to do what God uh, commanded him to do. Now Esther, this story here is one of redemption where God is going to use a Benjamite to finish the job that Saul never did. And that's going to happen in the, in the weeks to come. This is a story of redemption, not only for Israel, but in particular for the tribe of Benjamin. And we'll get a little bit more to that next week. But I will say this. God's providence, and this is one of the themes of, of Esther, always ensures that he has the last word. That his will, that his plans and his purpose will be fulfilled. And if it's through obedience, then wonderful. And, but if we fail in disobedience, his providence will work a story of redemption in to ensure that his plans and his purposes are accomplished for his glory. Mordecai had raised this young girl, Hadassah. Her, her name, Hadassah, the Hebrew name means myrtle, for the myrtle tree. In the Bible, uh, uh, the myrtle tree is a prophetic symbol that depicts God's forgiveness and his acceptance of his people. Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 55. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Hadassah's parents had passed away. She was young. She was beautiful. She had a lovely figure. She was nice to look at. But not only that, in, in God's plan, she was like a myrtle tree, an everlasting sign to the children of Israel that there had been briars. And God was going to bring something beautiful out of the thorns. That God for his name's sake, was going to do a, a work that would be everlasting through this young girl. She was also called Esther, a star. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Hege, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Hege, who had charge of the woman. So, you know, here's Esther. She hasn't signed up for a beauty contest. This isn't a pageant, Miss Persia. Uh, th this wasn't the grand scheme of her cousin Mordecai. The king's officials simply came and they took this young girl out of her home and they brought her to the palace to be part of the king's harem. And it would seem that she had no choice in the matter. Now, Hege was a, a eunuch and for obvious reasons, uh, the king entrusted him with all of his 400 virgins, right? Verse nine, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen women for the king's, from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. You know, as I read that, that just reminds me of Joseph finding favor in the house of Potiphar because God's blessing was on his life. And then even when a deception happened and he was sent off to prison, he found the favor of God in the prison and became a leader there. Or it reminds me of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who were brought as captives to Babylon. But as they sought to honor God, they found a, a, a place of prominence in the house of Nebuchadnezzar and they, they rose to the highest position among the young wise men in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And so to Esther, 
had the blessing of God upon her life. Obviously she's a young woman, but she's a woman of character and godliness. We're going to see as we read the story. You know, in the Proverbs, it says this in chapter three, verse three and four. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and in the sight of man. Esther was a young woman who found favor in the sight of God and in the sight of man. And like many of our favorite Bible characters before her, um, she was pushed to the front of the line. She, she found this favor with God and with man and God gave her a prominent place, in fact, the best place amongst all the women amongst uh, Ahasuerus' harem. Verse 10 says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So she kept it quiet that she was a Jew. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And I say, well, what, what, what's going on here? Why is, she, why is she keeping her nationality and her identity kind of on the down low? What's happening? I, is she being deceptive? I, I actually don't think so. I don't think that there's, you know, this is just, she's passing personal information on, on a need-to-know basis. She, she's the children of captives living in a foreign land. You know, there, there are certain countries, take many of the nations that I, I listed off earlier in the Middle East, where if you're a Christian, you don't walk around and advertise such things. You don't wear your Jesus shirt as you walk down the street. Because you'll jeopardize your safety and your life and you might die unnecessarily. And, and Esther, I think, was in a similar spot. So it was just, let's keep it quiet. It's a need-to-know basis. And we're going to see that in God's providence, he's going to use that to his advantage. As she holds back that information, that info is going to become helpful very later in her story. Now Mordecai, because of his position in the community's got some sort of position of prominence and leadership where he has access to the king's gate and the court in front of the court of the harem there. And he's able to keep tabs on his, his daughter, his cousin, and all that was happening with her because obviously, you know, as someone who was raising her, as her father, he, he was concerned about her safety, about her future, about what was happening with her. She was in a potentially dangerous position and so he kept daily tabs on her. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, then the young woman went into the king in this way. She was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return. This sounds like The Bachelor. In the evening she would go in and then in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of uh, somebody, can't say his name, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So you know this, this sounds really wonderful it's at the start doesn't it? You know a year of spa treatments, myrrh and oils and all you know ladies doesn't that sound nice? Yeah, it sounds pretty good. But it was all preparation, literally for one night with the king. 
He has a new virgin in his bed every night. And I mean, you just consider the destiny of, of these women. You know, if, if he just happened to choose you, let's say one out of 400 you're picked, then you're his wife until he's displeased with you. Then he kicks you to the curb. And, and as for the girls who lose out, they're banished to the harem of the concubines way, where maybe they'll never uh, see him ever again um, or rarely after that. And they'll never be free to marry anyone else. This, this is, I think in a lot of ways, not a great thing. In a sense, you know, you might, it's kind of like becoming a widow. And if you did choose him, well, then you still had to share him. So, you know, great, great, great scenario, isn't it? Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail. Esther's father's name, Abihail. You know what his name means? It means father of strength. And I think that's a great picture into the character of this young woman. He was the father of strength. Esther was a woman of great strength. And it came from her father. Ultimately, her father, her one in heaven, gave her great strength. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what he gave the king's eunuch who had charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when the king, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, hang on, let's just pause there for one second. Four years has passed since we opened with the book of Esther from the 180 day party. Four years before Esther is chosen. War has happened. All sorts of things have happened throughout the world. In the seventh year of his reign, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then he gave a great feast, another party, like the party. Then he gave a great feast for all his officials and servants it was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. You know, not only was, you know, if we look at Esther and we consider her as a woman of strength, as a woman of character, she's also a woman who displayed great wisdom and humility. I mean, you, you consider the humble wisdom she had when it was her turn to go before the king. She wisely asked Hige, what will help me gain favor in the eyes of the king? And he helped her. And everyone who saw her, she won their favor. They fell in love with her. She was, she was beautiful and she was attractive, but she was also godly. And you know, the reality is this, there, there is a beauty to godliness, isn't there? Godliness is very attractive on a woman. Consider this young woman. She's, she is the daughter of Jewish exile, exiles, both, both who died, Raised by her cousin in a, in a foreign and hostile culture and land. Taken without choice into the king's harem. And she found favor with all who met her. And she was selected to become the king's wife. Queen Esther. She was beautiful, but her life had the beauty of godliness upon it and the favor of God. A, a great thing to aspire to as a woman. And so the king chooses her. He falls in love with her. It's a love story. It's kind of sappy. 
all the way through. Anyways. The king throws a feast. He calls it Esther's feast and he grants remission of taxes and he gives gifts. I mean, this dude is happy. He's found the love of his life, his woman. And I would say this, God had a plan. This was no accident. It wasn't, you know, this wasn't luck. This wasn't good fortune. This was the providence of God. She was a, a woman of beauty and character, but the rest was God's work. God was beginning to unfold a story of providence for his children. And in her character, God found a vessel in which he could bring glory and honor to himself and to his name. And I would say this as we, come, as we cruise to the book of Esther. Esther's an interesting book because you will, we will not come across the name of God one time in the book of Esther. He's not mentioned. He doesn't come up. He, he's like the, the hand in the glove of the story. And it's really the, the idea of the book of Esther that God's in control, that you need not fear, that he's working all things together for the good of those whom he loves and who are called according to his purposes. And you know, we can look at our lives, we can go, how'd I get here, God? What's going on? Uh, you know, how did this happen? Why are you leading me to this place? What's your, there's things out of my control that I, I don't know how I got here or why I'm here. I would say to you this this morning. God has a purpose and God has a plan and he will work for your blessing and his glory in, in your life. And sometimes it takes a long time to figure out what he's doing. Other times it's quick and we recognize it. Sometimes it's a big purpose. Sometimes it's a small purpose. But God has a reason and he does not abandon the work of his hands, but he fulfills his purpose for his children. And I would say this, may we be found of the character that Esther had so that we could partner with him in his purposes. God, in his sovereignty, in his providence, he can even redeem evil. What, a, what an awesome thought about God. You know, King Ahasuerus had done many foolish things, selfish things, stupid things. And in the midst of his stupidity and his foolishness, God even took the opportunity to put a woman of godly character in a position of prominence and influence in his kingdom where she was close to decision makers. It's an awesome story. Then it comes to this next part of the story in, in verse 19 that, that seems kind of inconsequential. Let's, let's read it here for a moment. Verse 19. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther had obeyed Mordecai just as when she, had, when she was brought up by him. She's a woman of character. Verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry. And they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. 
And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told it to the, to the, to the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Some time goes by after Esther's been chosen queen. I, I'm not totally sure, but it says the virgins were gathered for a second. They've all been now moved into the second harem. Uh, they're no longer, they're, they're concubines now. And a couple of the eunuchs get ticked off about something. Something makes them mad. I don't know what it was. Were they, were, maybe they were friends of Vashti. Now that she's really put away and someone's in her, whatever it was, they begin to plot an assassination of the king. And as Mordecai is hanging out at the gates, he gets wind of this assassination plan. And so he goes to Esther, whom he has access to, and he reports to her what he has heard. And she tells the king, and Ahasuerus sends in his boys, FBI, CSIS. They go in there. They do their little sting operation and they discovered this is a real threat to the throne and uh, Big Than and Teresh are arrested and they're executed which was the, the culture and the, may of, the way of making sure that the king protected his throne and the whole incident is recorded in the chronicles of the king. Mordecai's written down and the book is shut and it's like Hmm, that's kind of random that it's placed in there. But remember, this is a story about the providence of God. This is a story that's going to come back as we get on later into the book of Esther. But it, it makes me think this. You know, Mordecai had played the hero. He had saved the king's life. And he wasn't rewarded. And he wasn't acknowledged uh, for the important part that he had played. And, and I, bet just, I bet there were lots of days in his life that that bugged him. You have things like that in your life? That bugs me, man. You know, I did that. I did that as an honorable thing. I sought to serve. My heart and my intention was right before God. And it was never acknowledged. It was, it was set aside. It, you know, there was no reward. But again, in the providence of God, God will not forget what Mordecai has done. And I would tell you this this morning. God's not forgotten you. In his providence, whatever's going through your heart or mind right now, God has not forgotten. And in his sovereign will, in his plan, he will see whether it was good or whether it was evil that he receives glory in and through your life as you follow him and as you serve him and as you live for him. And so I would challenge you this morning to walk in character before the Lord. Uh, to walk in godliness, integrity, to serve him and to trust him no matter what is happening in your life. To say, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Is it big? Is it small? Is it going to be a long time or a short time? I trust you. I trust your sovereign grace. I trust your providence in my life. Amen. Did you guys stand with me this morning? Worship team, you guys can come up here. Hey, this morning, I, I, I didn't get to prep my crew, but I wanted to have a couple prayer teams. Darcy, are you here somewhere? Are you, can you in town pray at the back? Greg and Lynn, could you guys do that as well? Could you just be at the back? And There's going to be a couple prayer teams. You say, man, you know, 
I just want to bring this before the Lord. Maybe you don't even want to share the details, but you look at your life and you go, I don't understand how good can come out of this. I don't understand what God is doing, but I just want to have someone agree with me and pray with me this morning and pray over me that God would just, that I'd be able to rest that God is going to do his work and that he'll bring glory to his name and in my life through the midst of these things. And so there'll be prayer teams at the back this morning as we worship and uh, feel free to go back there as we begin to sing. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that there's only one thing that you forget and it's our sin as it's brought to the cross. It's covered with the blood of Jesus and you don't remember it no more. I thank you, God, that, that as we come to Jesus, those things are forgotten. But Lord, in terms of other things in life, where we wonder what you're doing or, or how you're working as we serve you, I thank you, God, that we can trust that you do not forget. That in your providence, in your love for us, in your sovereign care for us, in your grace, you work all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Lord, we thank you for your providence. We thank you, Lord, that your hand is in the glove of human events. And all throughout the world, you are working your plans and your purposes in nations, in kingdoms, in continents. But even more wonderful than that, Lord, you condescend to work in my life and in the lives of each person here. And for that today, God, we thank you. And we look to you and we just proclaim our trust in you. And so God, may you be glorified in each heart and each life here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.